what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We just, he's sitting right here in front of us, <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this wonder. time. No there's no bread and milk on my table fuck in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're, just, we're just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client we'd look after, and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. the bed. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people that if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Caninesuticals. Yep. The best caninesuticals. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. Yeah, it's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes, in Canada. In Canada. Yes, Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? He's puppy class. Puppy class, yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara DeGroote. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love She just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We appreciate Thank you, Barbara. you. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxers. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did you pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? That uh, was in Colorado. 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 He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally – he it's does it. Deal. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. <laughs> Dog Club South South Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a great facility. Get in, check it out. He does all the the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. Yeah, he's got some cool artwork and stuff there. Check it out for sure. it's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We got a new one. Who we got? Tailored canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, Check it out. Taylor so they Canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. Taylor so thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you buffhead. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes, but we do have to limit how many people we have, and so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you, and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser, and that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course, that's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still South Wales has got shit pines. <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barbara de Groot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the hot dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Dog Club. Troppy Daniel. Dog Club. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and Matt. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio once again today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And once again, we're going to get straight into it. Straight into it. Straight into it. No talk. No talk. No mucking around. All right. We're carrying on with reading Alexandria Rice's post. Why not? It's Um, just littered with gold. (laughs) It's littered with gold. We only got a little way into it because we're really giving our own take on what everybody else has to say. Once again, it's a public Facebook post, so I don't feel bad about naming people and reading their stuff, and we're just going to go through it. It's quite fun. We had a fun time doing it last time. Before we do start on that, I will start by saying that I read something by Mike Suttle. Mm -hmm. I contacted Mike Suttle not long ago, about a week ago. We were just having a bit of a chat. I was trying to actually line him up to see if he'd come back over and do a seminar for us in Australia. Cool. Unfortunately, he won't because- Because <laughs> fuck you guys. Pretty much. But no, Mike's a great guy. Love him. Great dog trainer. And I know a lot of people would welcome him back, but he has decided that he is investing in deer farming. He's still doing the dogs. Mm-hmm. Like he's very busy with that, but he's got a massive farm in West Virginia. He's doing deer farming and his son is doing really well at football. Mm-hmm. So he has decided that he's going to be a dad a deer farmer, and still do his dogs. Very, very happy with what his bloodline is actually producing at the moment. He said of all the years he's been doing it, he's really thrilled about it, but he just doesn't have time to do the seminars and be on the circuit anymore. So he said, mate, I'd love to. I had a great time over there. We had a good chat. I miss Mike. I like him. He's a top bloke. Mm -hmm. I was flicking through his posts while I was contacting him, and he said that one of the things that he really hates is that a friend of his who's also a deer farmer has been getting a lot of online flack by a bunch of people who don't know him, don't know his ethos, his ethics, his business plan or anything like that, but have had massive opinion Mm. on him and his business. Mm. And Mike said it is incredibly disappointing. And I share that sentiment too. There's a lot of people out there in the dog world. When you have somebody like Mike Ellis that comes out and is full of love and enthusiasm and community, That's what I think our industry really is missing at the moment. There's just a bit of a funk at the moment. Are you feeling it? Like are you feeling a little bit of that weirdness around where people are a little bit narky and nasty to each other? I think so. It's tricky. I think that there's a constant simmering tension was in the dog space. Mm. And I think that that, when you really distill that down, its origin is that. But not just the dog space, like in the deer 
raising no, yeah, that's space right. as well. Yeah, yeah that's and right. And the horse raising space. I saw somebody saying, you know, like I thought the dog world was funky and yeah, yes, Sarah Bruski said it. Sarah Bruski yeah. said it. Yes, yeah. that's correct. I think as well, like, well, yeah, then yeah, sort of more broadly, I think that everybody has a level of tension. I think that the, there's, you know, there's a lot of weird societal stuff going on. Like we're all seeing at the moment that our governments are completely corrupt. It's like it, those <laughs> fucking rich men north of Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, yeah. I think that that leaves a simmering tension and a feeling of unease. Simmering tension. Yeah, and a feeling yeah. of unease that I think people are – we've done so well to stay out of US politics, especially on the show, and I definitely don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But there's just so much rife corruption that is now so obvious and they don't even bother hiding it anymore. Mm. And I think that that leaves people feeling somewhat helpless about that. And so people start trying to intervene into the spaces where they feel like they can have some level of impact. I do agree because with that. Because you can, like, you can only jump up and down about Nancy Pelosi Conducting insider training and getting a two hundred dollar fine, right? For so long. Well, look at they, our, some of our politicians, Gladys Berejiklian, like yeah, all of them. They're, she copped all, it for same sort of thing, insider training with her corrupt ex politician yeah. boyfriend, and literally got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, like any one of us would be seeing decades in jail, probably, yeah. possibly for the same thing. So that's what I think has led to a. a a feeling of tension everywhere is that there's somewhat of helplessness in that, like, I'm stuck in this system. Mm. And you're not stuck. Just fucking anarchy. Burn it all down. That's yep. that. <laughs> That's <laughs> Kill your masters. Uh, it's ooh, never too wow. late. <laughs> anyway, carry on. <laughs> so we're going to keep on reading these. Things dog trainers hate to hear. Yes. Mark Goldberg is the next cab off the rank here. Mm, mm. And he says, he's got a little blue tick next to his name there, Mark Goldberg. Good he's, for you, Mark. He's the real person. He's yeah, the real deal. It's really, it's really Mark. We know yep. for sure it's him. I have hired a behavioralist instead. Well done. <laughs> well, most people that I know in the dog training atmosphere who are worth their salt freak out when they hear that statement themselves because mm. literally they're going to somebody who is not going to look at the dog, mm. who is already writing a prescription for you by the time you're sitting down the seat. They don't even let you get the seat warm. It's mm. basically like don't sit, there won't be time. Here, take this prescription and go and get it filled. Mm. That's a little tongue-in-cheek. That's a little hyperbolic. It's a little hyperbolic. It's a little salty. It's not far from the truth. There is plenty of times where colleagues and customers – people who have come to us for consults, not just me but my staff as well, where their story is much of the same. Like they didn't want to look at the dog. They literally wrote me a script. Not that I'm anti-medicine for dogs. We'll call it medicine rather than any anxiety or antidepressants or SSRIs or anything. I'm not anti-medicine. I am for it as long as the conduct around it is fine. As long as the person who is doing it is looking at the dogs, they're taking bloods, they're doing everything that they need to to say this isn't behavioural, this is actually psychological and we need to treat this like a psychiatrist would with a patient where exercise, training and medication or slash medicine is going to help fix this problem up. But they don't. They kind of say, don't worry about what the trainer say, let's just take this and we'll just keep upping the dose until the dog can't move anymore. So mm. that'll that'll remove the issue. I think that's where our industry loses focus and loses faith in the medical professionals who call themselves behaviorists. I think to sort of, I'll even go a, a different layer to what. Um, Are you going to be more charitable than I am? No, what I'm going to say is that I think the word behaviorist is loaded. 
because what are the legalities around calling yourself a behaviorist and especially worldwide, right? So there's plenty of dog trainers in Australia that really have done nothing but watch the Caesar Milan box set yep. that call themselves behaviorists. Yes, that's true. Um, and, you know, it's the same worldwide. As far as I understand, there's plenty of people who decide, like, I'm going to call myself that. It's a tricky one because I've been introduced by someone as a behaviorist mm. and I had stopped them and was like, I said in the time, I was like, that word carries a certain level of qualification that I don't have. Like to me, that indicates veterinary behavioralist and I'm not one of those. In fact, you know, I'm usually pretty open with people. I'm like, I have no qualifications. This is an unregulated industry. Mm. I'm quite good at it. I teach other people and I have a huge body of evidence as to that I'm capable. And you're, you, you know, this, I've never had people complain. This wasn't a personal complaint. This is a person bragging about using me as a trainer. And so that's what I mean is that like that word behaviorist is loaded because my mind doesn't immediately go to, like yours immediately went to veterinary behavioralists and your concern around that is yep. the overprescription of SSRIs. Yep. My concern usually is when people say I'm a behaviorist, not a trainer, usually that carries the sort of connotation of all I'm going to do for a person that's not a veterinary behaviorist. Mm. They're usually more of a lifestyle based thing. They're the kind of people that kind of brag about not knowing the science. These are the type of people that would tell you like, I don't need to know about operant conditioning. I just train the dog in front of me. You know, that sort of rhetoric that you sometimes hear. Yep. That word in general is difficult because often people who are not that competent call themselves uh, or, or really, let me rephrase. Instead of not that competent, let me say that they're usually people who are not that educated. Like mm -hmm. many people in the industry are not super educated that call themselves behaviorist and some of the people who are the most educated call themselves behavioralists and use that, you know, they've usually got a degree on the wall saying such, right? So I think that's kind of the trickiness of that word behaviorist. But Mark says specifically, I hired a behaviorist instead. And that instead is the problem because we're dog trainers. The point here, you know, Alexandria's initial thing was things dog trainers hate to hear. And more often than not, training is exactly what the dog needs. It, mm. The result, what the, the downstream effect, the obvious problem that we say that dog has a behavioral issue is more often than not fixed with lifestyle and training. And the connotation attached to behaviorist is normally that this is either going to be like we're going to put the dog on a slap mill until it's exhausted and then it can't display the behaviors anymore. We didn't actually fix any of the underlying issues and all you're going to do is progressively end up with a fitter dog over time that's going to be more capable of causing the problems because you're not actually fulfilling the dog. You're just burning the energy. Yep. Or can sometimes carry that connotation of exactly as you said, a person that intends to medicate the dog out of its problem behaviors rather than addressing what's the underlying cause of the problem behaviors. Now, I'm no, I'm going to go to my default. Have you seen? <laughs> Have you seen that movie? <laughs> Have yeah. you seen that movie? It is a Netflix show. Mm. Have you seen Painkiller? No. Fascinating. Really? It's based on the oxycodone problem in America, mm -hmm. all around worldwide, the world, but yeah. worldwide, but, but mainly, mainly in, in the United States. And, it is fascinating. I don't know how much of it's true. I haven't delved into that. However, there was a statement in the series when they were talking about the amount of pain management that a doctor actually goes through or somebody who's doing an intern into medicine. 
it's a ridiculously small amount of time mm. where they actually spend time on pain management. Mm-hmm. That's why, and I could be wrong because I'm going off a Netflix series. Me, myself, I'm not involved in pain management. I don't know. But they were saying that it's alleging that most of it is true. It's sure, b- sure. built on the architecture of a true story. Mm-hmm. And they were saying that most people in, in medicine, to repeat myself, have been, it's something like, Three hours or something like that, like a ridiculous, not probably not even three hours. It's a ridiculously small amount of time that new doctors, intern doctors spend on learning about pain management. Mm-hmm. Henceforth, that's why the problem escalated as it did. That's where I think a lot of dog trainers, they really probably fall away with their trust and their confidence in a veterinary behaviorist calling themselves a behaviorist because how much behaviour have they actually seen Yeah, when they're doing their work? I've been talking about my thoughts and feelings about becoming a helicopter pilot. The minute that you actually get that certificate to call yourself a pilot, you're a pilot. You can do solo flights around wherever you want to go. There are upskilling that you need to do, but you got like X amount of hours before somebody ticks the box and says, off you go. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing when I got my motorcycle licence, when I was a, a learner mo- motorcycle licence, like – you just have to ride around a little bit and you're on a machine traveling around in Sydney traffic or Melbourne traffic or Brisbane traffic or the United States traffic or traffic around the world. doesn't matter. It's not a lot of time. Mm. That's why a lot of people just bin it and cause themselves a lot of problems. So there are dog trainers out there who have seen more behavior than most of the medical community put together. That's just a fact. Like yeah. they're literally dealing with all sorts of behaviour all of the days of their life. They're, they're seeing dog after dog after dog. They're at boarding kennels. They're doing private lessons. They're in sports clubs. They're doing whatever. But they're seeing an enormous amount of varying types of behaviour. The only thing that they're not licensed to do is to supply and provide medication, mm. which I'm happy about. Don't get me wrong. Of course. I'm not trying to say that I want dog trainers to be able to supply and provide medication. I'm happy for the veterinary profession to do that. But what I would like to see is more of them working in conjunction with each other instead of fighting each other off all the time and saying, no, 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 we're an esteemed professional recognised by a university certificate and you're just a lowly person who has spent three to one decade in training dogs, what would you know about behaviour? Yeah. How dare you call yourself a behaviourist? Look, I understand. I know that we've always talked on the show about the desire and the love or the the want to build a common language, that would be nice. But I don't know how far that will actually go into successfully developing something like that where the medical profession and the dog trainers will agree with each other on who is who and what is what. Mm. Let me play devil's advocate. Please. And I'm thinking out loud here. I'm certainly not saying this is the case. Mm. Do you think it's possible that a lot of the veterinary behavioralists that we know that just are you know very prescription happy, do you think it's possible that – they kind of have an assumption that they're not the first step in the chain to helping with the dog. Because, you know, certainly I have, you know, we've talked about in the past, both of us have agreed in the past that something with a dog was outside of our skill set because there probably was cause for medication and that, you know, the dog might be you know, truly unstable or at a level of arousal that, you know, we couldn't, you know, when, especially when you're trying to fix an issue, you want to stay below threshold. And if there is no below threshold, then usually that's a cause for like, okay, now let's consider some SSRIs or something to knock the edge off. Mm. I tweeted this the other day because now I'm a tweeter, I'm a Twitter user or an X, X. user. <laughs> sidestep, um, sidestep. Sorry to interject, but yeah. sidestep. 
How amazing would somebody feel if they were powerful enough to buy a company and then just say, fuck you, I'm changing the name. Yeah. Well, it certainly is one way to smash legacy, that's for sure. Um, oh, but I so just laugh about that. Anyway. I, I, I wrote something the other day about surely the, the role of SSRIs in people and in dogs yeah. is to allow you to do the work, right? Like that's the point usually is that – the starting point is so difficult that we want to use the medication to get the car going. Like, you know, when you're pushing a car, the hardest part is getting it started. Mm. And maybe the medication can help in that. And then now it's going, let's keep pushing it and try and phase out the medication. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. Maybe, you know, there's certainly some people, some dogs are a customer for life and rightly. And that's because of many factors that can lead to that being the case. But I think too many people, too many dogs are customers for life where really the idea should be that let's knock the edge off this difficulty, this anxiety, these problems that you have so that we can do the work. And the work, you know, in people and in dogs is many and varied. Someone asked recently in our group about, luckily for me, I have many, many, many physical injuries from my time in the army, but I don't have any brain injuries. Thank fuck, right? Mm. I've never taken a massive hit to the head or, I mean, I've taken plenty, but none that caused any acute problems. CTE is probably on the horizon for me. What's CTE? Uh, it's a, I can't remember the acronym, but it's long-term brain damage from minor concussions, like right. constant hits. So it's like, that's what so many football players are now discovering that they have. And it's terrible. It's a horrific thing that a lot of, especially in American football, the way it's played with such, you know, that the pads allow for such insane impact yep. that your brain is still just rattling around in that helmet. There's, they call it punch drunk in boxing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but sort of a different version of that in that the sickness that comes of it is usually depression-based. Mm. And rather than, you know, like punch-drunk boxers slur their words and stuff like that, right? Like where you, there is a level of obvious brain damage, the CTE usually ends up in more – like a lot of guys that I was in the army with that sort of – get diagnosed with that sort of thing, it's depression before it's CTE because mm. it really fucks with your endocrine system. Your hormones aren't in check. It's a lot of different things that go wrong with you. And there's this huge movement. It's very, very sad. I listened to a podcast about a Malcolm Gladwell one about the amount of American football players that are killing themselves and doing that in a way that preserves their brain so that they can be autopsied and like show wow. like, hey, I wasn't crazy. Yep. And leaving notes explaining that, you know, killing themselves in a way that instead of shooting themselves or whatever, like killing themselves in a way that preserves their brain so that they can actually have a look and see all the damage damage that the whole literal holes in their brain that's come of it. Jeez. Anyway, back to the point. Well, hopefully was, their sacrifice will bear some fruit for people in the future. Well, it, and hopefully it, is. it certainly and, is something that people are beginning to understand now. I spoke mm, about on the podcast. Now I was part of the sad. test that they did when I was in the army where we used the smallest charge that we had. Cause you know, like an explosive breaching charge or something like that, it's a directional charge. And so we usually set those off with like two meter leads. You're mm. standing right next to that charge when it goes off. Cause the, the blast hits you, but no frag will hit you. There's nothing to hit. But the shockwave is still yeah. in, like, if you see the slow motion of people's yeah. skin and their fluids and their body and so forth, like, it's incredible what it actually does. I was watching slow motion video of somebody shooting an egg and you could see the shockwave of the bullet before the bullet actually strikes it, like actually having an impact on the oh, egg yeah, itself yeah. and then the bullet um, shatters it. Yeah. Amazing. With all of those sorts of combating anxiety, depression and whatever in people, there's a lot of work to be done in that. And There is. And I don't have any of the symptoms of that, right? In fact, yep. I have the opposite. But I'm in a cohort of people that statistically I, I'm in the group that is likely to get it. Mm. I do a lot of the fucking things to avoid it, you know, and all the cliched bullshit, the exercise, the sauna, the ice bath, all of the meditation, all of the bullshit that you see fitness influencers on Instagram trying to convince you to do. Like I do all of that because it for sure helps. But if you were already- Then it's in not the, bullshit. 
No, exactly, right? Mm. It's But if you're already in the pit of despair, mm. beginning that shit can seem like an insurmountable task. And that's the role of medication, right? To get it to the point where you can go, all right, we'll tackle this. Like, And then the idea being that you get on the wagon and you start doing all those right things. And hopefully, not necessarily for everybody, but hopefully you can fade that medication out. So surely a lot of veterinary behavioralists that – are thinking some trainer has done the lifestyle piece, you know, like before you come to them, they really should be not the first point of call. And so, you know, certainly for the people that I have said, hey, I think this is outside of my skill set. Like I think that this dog needs the edge taken off and then come back to me and we can try and continue ahead because Mm. the things that I know to do aren't working. That is usually, you know, that's when I refer someone on to veterinary behavioralists. And the assumption I guessing or hoping is from some of those veterinary behavioralists, but that that has happened with all of their clients that by the time someone's come to them and now the problem could be that a lot of people would say when they go see their behavioralist and they say, well, I've engaged with a trainer. And if that trainer was just like throw cookies at the dog and hope for the best, which many are, and I'm not saying like, I'm not trying to cause a division between like balance and force free trainers, but like there's a lot of shitty balance trainers and they are. Yeah. We've established that. There's shitty shitty trainers on all Exactly. So a lot of shitty force free trainers will have just achieved nothing. And they're often people who will then refer people to veterinary behavioralist. And so the veterinary behavioralist then says, well, you have engaged with a trainer. Like you have done the work that, you know, has not worked. So here is the medication to take the edge off to be able to continue doing the work. And there's probably like a breakdown there, like some miscommunication in that part or like a misunderstanding of how well that work has been done or even the fact that there is degrees of how well that work can be done. Mm. So like that has to remain a possibility. I like to keep that in my mind as a possibility as to why we see such prescription handouts in dogs. That's a good devil's advocate argument. And I support it. I think it's well thought about and well worded. I think what myself and possibly others are more concerned about is when you do look at some of these documentaries that are exposing lazy doctors in multiple fields. Mm-hmm. And they are out. They're people that have given up on life. Yeah. They're people that are extremely unethical. There's people and who are shit at their job no matter what job it is. All fields. Yeah. I totally agree. And there are people out there who are amazing at it. And I've you know, I've had the good fortune of knowing people that have worked in the veterinary field who have prescribed SSRIs and medications to dogs. I've sent them to them, you know, because they're wonderful people. They do a great job. They feel privileged that they've got that level of control and they've got that level of guidance in their field. They're not lazy and they're not unethical. And I feel that my argument and possibly the argument that of people that I would represent find it in the unethical people, the people who don't give a fuck, mm. that they've just given up, that are just there for the money. The unfortunate side is there are also people, even within Australia, who are in such high levels that they, they're they almost untouchables. Mm. That's the sad thing in, and that's where this laziness and this lack of ethics probably comes from. To repeat on that, there are amazing people out there. There are veterinary behaviourists and veterinarians who are incredible people and I'm certainly not bashing them. We've talked about this before in the past where veterinarians cop an incredible amount of stress mm. and they're prone to such high levels of suicide and that's something that I really do care about and that's something that I really do want to prevent. Even the vets that I use, uh, I can see the weathering of the storm that they have to face with people all the time. And there is this ire that is out there. What did you call it before? What was the phrase you used for it? Not sure. At the start when we're talking about this unease. Oh, 
I can't remember. <laughs> you used a good term and I thought that, you know, like that's very appropriate because veterinarians, because it's such an emotional position where they're yeah. dealing with sickness and disease and people's desperation, again, there are some terrible shitty veterinarians out there but the majority of them are really good. Mm. They're amazing lifesavers but they go home sometimes just feeling completely defeated because they've just had a Karen in there beating the shit out of them in the waiting room or in the back office who is incredibly unqualified to do so in every way, shape and form. I've been in the waiting room and I've heard people carrying on at vets and so forth before and I thought, man, someone needs to slap the privilege out of you because that is just a terrible way to speak to somebody. But these people, they feel like I've got a right to do it because I'm upset. Yeah, I'm upset so I can talk to you like you're human garbage and trash yeah. even though you are a incredibly talented person who has saved the life of multiples of animals in, you know, cats, dogs, lizards, snakes, rats, all sorts of things. And to know all that biology and to have that skill set behind you, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that I have incredible admiration for our vet friends. I really do because I work with them so closely in this industry and I know so many of them. They're incredible. They're, They're incredible. But the ones who aren't, it's the one percenter. It's always that one percenter who challenge the narrative and they take the headlines and that's what people see and that's where the ire comes from. It's a very weird scenario, especially, say, here in Australia and many other places in the world, right, where the medical system's pretty good. So, yeah, of course you 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 can find fault anywhere, but I think for the most part here it's quite excellent. Yeah. It's wild. It's one to good think. thing our government did do. Yeah, yeah, it is. When I was at college in the States, one of the things I didn't really understand, one of the guys that was there was saying that the Australian government, even the most right wing extremist party in Australia, is a left wing extremist party by American standards. Yep. And the reason being is like you get sort of weird policies and whatever, but nobody is looking to dismantle Medicare. Yep. Nobody's looking to take away social welfare systems that we have in place. Mm. And so that's the biggest difference. But anyway, I digress. If you have a loved one that gets hit by a car, you know that you can call an ambulance, it'll come, and that you're gonna they're going to go to the closest hospital. And, and they'll get treatment. A highly competent doctor is mm. going to do their fucking best and they're going to be in hospital as long as they need to be. And when they're done, they're going to walk out and no money's going to change hands. Yep. Right? Like, and that's a pretty incredible position for all of us to be in. The problem is, I think that when that happens to a loved one, a human loved one, you're like, okay, well, it's going to be what it's going to be at this point. They're in the hands of those people. And that's it. Like, if they can be saved, they will be saved. Mm. But people love their animals as much and in many cases more than their human compadres. That's true. That's not the case with it's their a animals. It's phenomenon that people don't understand unless they're invested in pet ownership yeah. and the love of that said and, pet. And, you know, the way it works in Australia, for people who don't know, is like we all contribute 1% of our income pays for everybody's medical bills, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the Medicare levy. 1% yep. of everybody's pay goes to that. Yep. And there is no such thing for dogs or cats. Yep. The cost of medical equipment is insanely expensive. Mm. And so vets have to front all that. And that's what I think that So get pet insurance. Yeah, of course. You, yeah. Like but but you know that's expensive as well, right? And so there's these costs associated to these things that we don't have in human terms that we do have in dog terms. And I think that's what leads to so much contempt in the vet's waiting room when you see people who are you know, their dog needs a $15,000 operation and they don't have 15 grand to put their hands on. Well, most people don't have that, mm. but this is their most loved being. It doesn't matter that it's not it's not a human. It's their most loved thing. And the anger and resent that you usually see pointed at the vet is usually at the people for like they're in the position where they, they cannot afford 
the treatment of their most loved thing, mm. the, the thing they love the most. So it's a horrific situation. The vets have it to is. deal with the brunt of that. I agree. It's a horrific situation to be in. It's yep. a horrific situation to be on either side of. Yep. Me and you, I think, do a, as good a job of it as can be done pointing out the problems therein with some individuals but acknowledging that it's a fucking hard job and their most vets are incredible at it and without them we'd be fucked, mm. you know? So like it's a – it's a tricky line to walk, showing that respect, but also acknowledging. And this is one of the things like this is, I was talking about this with someone the other day, you know, in the army, you don't pack your own parachutes, right? There's people whose job it is to pack parachutes and there's a little tag on it tells you what time and what day it was packed. <laughs> and, and by who? And by who, right? Yeah. Well, by a number, not their name. But like, I used to check all mine and make sure mine wasn't packed on a Friday afternoon. Right? Yep. Like, so it's the same. Like people fuck up at their jobs all the time. Mm. I fuck up at my job all the time. So, but like when I make a mistake, it's usually that like I used the wrong marker or I gave the dog its wrong command or maybe I clicked when I meant to pop the pro- – like all these various things that are sort of not that big a deal. Mate, right? In legal terms, there's often people say, I hope you don't get the magistrate before lunch. Yeah, there you mm. go. Right? Yeah. Exact same thing. And yeah. so – it's tricky when you're dealing with any level of professional or any person in their work, people make mistakes people. And there are people who are just not good at it. There are people who emotionally checked out that don't want to be there anymore, but like need the money, but that exists everywhere. It does. Let's move along the list. Otherwise that will consume (laughs) the entire one. And that's a very, that was a very deep and heavy rabbit hole. Marina says uh, that's way too expensive. Yeah. That's happened multiple times in the industry. It reminds me of that picture where there is a beautiful half end of a horse, something that Jane would draw and would be able to tattoo, and the rest of the horse looks like Rip drew it or even Axel drew it on the other end. It basically says, you know, like if you want to pay for a professional versus an amateur, this is what what the outcome is going to look like. In many cases, it's exactly the same thing, and that's why so many people will cycle through so many dog trainers and end up at the end of the spectrum where it's usually welfare, you know, the dog's been surrendered. The dog is going to be a pre-rescue dog because they've basically just given up on the expense of it. Had they found the right person at the right time, which is I really admire when I do see people do their due diligence and they travel the industry and they ask a lot of questions and they say, on forums now, this is the type of dog I've got. These are all the problems that it's presenting. It is biting or it is doing said reckless behaviour. Who in Sydney or who in Melbourne or who in Brisbane or whatever part of the world that people are coming from, who deals with this? Mm. Who would you recommend that's got credibility in the industry and good results with dogs? Scott and I were talking about this. This is my mate that I go riding with. He's on motorcycle forums and he said the amount of people – who instead of doing a bit of researching through the forum, instead of just like doing a search on the question that they had, like simply type going into the Facebook forum, typing in what would you do in this situation, he said the amount of people who will ask the same question, he said because it's the 20th time people will get pissed off with it and they won't give the answer or that, yeah, they, they give a sarcastic answer. That in itself is a problem because good people who did mean well, who did want to help, have thought this is the, like the fucking 50th time this question's come into the forum. Like, fuck you, go get a life or something like that. So the poor person thinks, well, I'm doing the right thing. I've gone to a forum. I'm trying to find an answer to this problem that I've got and now all I'm getting is salt from everybody. Like I'm literally getting shade from every single person on this forum. Yeah. But if you look back in time, which I have done as well, when I've seen that same sort of thing where they say, see this 15 
years ago or something like that. But if you do read the answers that they've given, they're very well thought out. They're yeah. very well pre-planned. There is a lot of structure and a lot of guidance to them. You think, oh, my God, that's so nice. So kind that they wrote all that detailed information out of there as opposed to 2023 <laughs> version of that person who's just gone through COVID isolation, who's sick of the world and the government and is now very, very salty and is now going to salt spray you because you're the – 50th person on the forum who's asked exactly the same sort of question. Yeah. Pricing in the dog world is weird. And I think, you know, as a dog trainer, what you can charge is not linear. There's a a lot of industries like that though. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, that's one of the things when people say that's too expensive. The average person, like the dog owning public, probably has no idea what a dog trainer costs, right? Like for the person who does has no cause to engage with one and they've had, you know, dogs their whole life and they've had good little dogs and they basically know what's what mm. and then they get a puppy that maybe gets attacked in its critical period by another dog and now they've got a problem dog. Through no fault of their own, something happened and so now they've got cause to engage with a trainer. It could be a shock to find out that you're going to pay quite a lot of money for that, you know? Yes. And knowing what to charge as a trainer is really tricky as well because like in all things, there's this element of exactly as we just said, you get what you pay for. But that's not always the case because we've discussed in the past, there's people here in Sydney who are really terrible trainers and actually probably have no business being professional dog trainers that charge $700 for an initial consult that goes for an hour. You know, that kind of thing. So, Yep. I've seen it multiple times where they've – like I said, you know, my example that I used before, I could go and be a helicopter pilot. Would you want to get in a helicopter with me and do a chartered tour with me, knowing that I literally the day before I just got my license? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, that means that I've got something like 50 hours of flying or something like that. I can't remember what the exact hourly figure is mm-hmm. versus somebody who's done 500 hours, who has worked all around the world, has industry tickets flown people backwards and forwards to oil rigs, flown in shitty wind conditions, flown in weather, flown in all that sort of stuff versus somebody who literally got their pilot certificate that day. Yeah. You know, but you are a pilot and you are a dog trainer at that same sort of spectrum and nobody knows the difference until they realise, hey, my dog ain't getting better. Mm. You know, like he's maintaining his same behavioural deficits or he's gotten worse. Yeah. And this person doesn't seem to be able to dig me out of this hole. All they're doing is digging me into the hole. But, you know, for us in the Western world and the capitalist world, we have this, you know, very ingrained idea that cost is equivalent to value. Yeah. Right. And it should be, but there's people who are very good at punking that game. And so you see people who go, well, okay, I'm, you know, the, the highest that anyone in the industry is charging is $700 for an initial consult, you know, for a one hour session. And mate, that's 10 years ago, me and you were whinging. Do you know, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah. So that was nearly 10 years ago that we found out that he was charging 700 bucks for an initial consult. So yep. God knows what he's charging now. Right. And still just as bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't get any better. Even when- the other day I had a complaint from somebody who hadn't heard of the name for ages. Said person comes up to me and goes, I just did a consult with this person, do you know them? And I said, yeah, I didn't even know they were still in the industry. And they said, fucking pathetic. Yeah, because they don't engage with anybody in the industry. They can't get any better. Right. They're just those isolated people who never turn up, never educate. But so you look look then and, you know, I'll talk about it. I charge 200 bucks an hour, right? And that's a fucking big chunk of money. That's a lot of money, right? But 
the thing is my clients are mostly other dog trainers mm. and I train the luxury type dogs. Yep. So I train sport dogs for a lot. There isn't a fucking person on the planet that needs a sport dog, mm. but there are plenty of people that need their pet dog no longer to be reactive. Yep. So I cannot charge what other, like, like what a trainer who says you know, doesn't have the skill set that I have, but is going to work in a section of the market in which I don't want to work. They can charge way more than me because there's the ability to yep. like people need that service. Mm. And like, that's how capitalism works is supply and demand. And there's much less demand for what I do than there is the demand for fixing reactive dogs. And so what a person charges is not necessarily representative of how good they are at their job in our industry and in others. It can be. And for the most part, it sort of is, but it's usually, you know, how much can the avatar of your customer afford to pay? And that's going to change so much no matter where you are in the world. Like you go to a, a lower socioeconomic area where people just don't have that sort of disposable income to spend on a trainer. And so then you have to choose, okay, well, like am I fluking that I get one customer every now and again who can leverage themselves to be able to afford me or do I lower my rates and you know, be able to have more people that can afford me? You know, that's a choice that an individual has to make. But that's one of the things that I think that when people say to a dog trainer, like, oh, I didn't realize it was going to be that expensive. That can be a very genuine response where they have no idea because, you know, at the moment I'm getting, uh, I'm a, you know, there's no secret. I'm obsessed with my bullet journal. One day we have to do this episode on it because people keep bringing, asking me about it, but I wanted to get a leather cover made for it. Mm -hmm. Right. That's going to be a fucking expensive leather cover because I don't know anyone that can make what I want. And so I had to go, it's a first time interaction with a custom leather maker. I don't know anyone else that can do that. The next time I see you, you'll probably start smelling of sandalwood and you'll have (laughs) an exquisite collection of leather bound books. Well, it's going to take, well, I'm going to have a leather bound book, but it's going to take several weeks because I've engaged a super high level professional. But when he told me how much it was going to cost, I nearly fell out of my fucking chair. How much? It was a lot. (laughs) You're so embarrassed to say, you won't even say it on air. Several hundred dollars for the cover. Look, if you can afford it, that's a good point, right? Well, it's a luxury item. It is I a don't luxury need item. it at all. Right now, my all the reason it's gonna be so expensive is I'm having like the front cover of it custom made to hold the exact type of but pens it'll, that it'll I last you forever. Exactly. So yeah. I have I have made the decision yep. and and I've decided like, okay, that is something that is worth that to me. Yeah. But if I said to you, hey mate, it's gonna like uh, you have no need for it. And it, or a minor need you have, you've got a notebook in front of you, yep. right? But it's not a notebook that you carry everywhere no, with you. It's not a huge part of your life. So if I were to say it's going to be $450 to put a leather cover around that, you tell me to fuck off. You have no cause for that. Right. Mm. But for me, that is no problem. I'm like, sweet. That It's a tool. Yeah. But also like th- that's an investment in something that I'm very interested in. Yep. Right. I, I totally get it. And I so understand. that's what happens in the dog training space yep. is that as a dog trainer, you have the capacity to charge whatever you want, mm. but the market has the capacity to decide whether they will pay it. Yep. And one of the things that I think drives us all crazy as dog trainers is when people will say, like, they call me and say, hey, I've got an issue with my dog. And I say, hey, no worries. I can help you with that. It'll be $200 an hour. And they're like, oh, that's too expensive. And you go, okay, no worries. But then usually, you know, you check out these people and you have a look online and they've got a Yeti dog bed for their dog, right? Mm. So it's like a $450 dog bed. So it's like, okay, well, 
it's not that you can't afford to pay me the $200 an hour. It's that you don't see the value in it. The yep. fixing of that problem is not worth the $200 for you. It's yes. not that you necessarily can't afford it. And, and of course there are people who genuinely can't afford it. But for me and my, what I do as a trainer, like I mostly educate other trainers, that's a really difficult thing to quantify because if you're new, maybe there isn't value in talking to me, mm. but then maybe from something you learn from me, you can become much better and you can up your prices and you can become a, a more competent trainer that can then charge more. So like it's really difficult to quantify how much can you charge and what is the value that you provide because the value that you provide is so different to each individual that you provide it to. Mm. After hearing you speak on that, I recall a conversation that a colleague used to tell me ages ago where I worked at his facility. We were talking about dog leads and he said, what do you think this dog lead's worth? And I said, oh, about 25, 30 bucks. He goes, wrong answer. And I said, what's it worth? And he goes, whatever you're prepared to pay for it. Mm. And I looked at him, I thought, that's actually really smart. And he goes, mate, that's the secret of capitalism. He said, it's not about what you think it's worth. He said, it's what somebody will pay you for it. And he said, because you can take this to one socioeconomic place and they will say it's worth $15. That's all I can, well, that's all I can afford to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And he said, and then you'll take it to another place and somebody will call it a bespoke lead handmade and they'll put some gravity behind it where somebody will say, well, that shit, that's worth $89 all, all day round. Yeah. You know, like I'll be happy to pay for it. And when you go into a lot of restaurants, they're using the same ingredients that a, a restaurant down the road would be using, but they call it all these fancy names, you know, microherbs infused with the essence of pine bark that's been lathered by an old bushman's beard or something like that. And people will go, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, like I'm happy to pay $400 for two people to sit here, you know, in the freezing cold and have some swanky waiter come over and pour me like a four times the price of a Dan Murphy's wine and call it a good night out where you get a bottle of wine from Dan Murphy's, which is $30. Yeah. You go down the road and to a BYO place and you'd get a similar sort of meal and you could pay something like $150 for that meal or go to the other place where it's $450 to pay for the privilege of the atmosphere and mm -hmm. maybe the chef's talents and so forth. I'm not saying that it's not worth it, but still it's what you're prepared to pay for it. And yeah. I, and I agree entirely with that sentiment. However, there are times where the chef is very highly skilled. Of course. That they do know how to make food taste absolutely amazing. And when you do taste it compared to the other place down the road, you can say, fuck, I can taste the difference in that all day long. And that's why I'm prepared to pay that difference. So there are varying degrees of what people will pay. You're right. There are also people that punk the system. There are people that are just confident and say, well, I believe in myself and I think I am of value. And I'm an amazing person and people will love me. So I'm going to charge $700 out the gate. I know people who've done that in NDTF course. They've literally got the qualification. They walk straight out the door and they have gone for top shelf price. Mm -hmm. Whether people agree with them or not, they manage to get clients. They might just get one crack at them, one round, but they still get that one round because yeah. they've got the confidence and the bravado to provide to go out there. I don't like it myself personally because I feel like that really bottoms out the industry because then after that one round, it saturates the market with people who aren't content with the first round that they actually had. Yeah. And then they lose confidence in the market entirely. Exactly. They that's the issue yeah. is that people then, you know, as I said, people think, well, I'll get the most expensive because that's therefore the best. Yeah. 
and the person turns up, they charge them the seven. We keep sticking with that seven hundred dollar. Yeah, they charge them seven hundred bucks, <laughs> and then they're they're terrible, and they go, "Well, fuck, this guy's the best because his website said so. Yep. He's got a bunch of fake awards on his website and fake testimonials." He's charging the most, therefore is the best, is an industry-leading expert, according to him, so all dog trainers are pieces of shit. Mm. And I, I've met plenty of people who have held that belief. They maybe then go, okay, well, maybe that guy was having a bad day or he's a fraud, so they hire another one at a similar price point and yep. end up with the same experience, and then it's like, okay, well, that's what dog trainers are. And then they're the people that then go to the behaviorist because they go, you know, I don't know what it's worth these days, but last time I referred someone to a veterinary behavior, it was 1200 Yep. You then go, all right, well, I'm now 1400 in in bad dog trainers because I've seen two that were terrible. The next step is the behavioralist. And so to go back to what we we're saying, they then turn up and they go, I've had two trainers around. Neither have been able to help me. Mm. I'm here for your help. Behaviorist writes a script. The money just keeps churning around. Everybody's happy except the dog and the client. Yep. Right? So anyway, all right. Next topic. We <laughs> we're gonna. I think we're gonna have fifteen parts to this podcast. Oh my god, could go Lord, forever. Yeah. Okay. Addison says she picked me, so I know she would be a successful service dog. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, that's one of those urban myth old wives tales that the dog picks you. That the dog picks you. Yeah. I don't see it as being anything wrong with finding a dog that you feel that you vibe with. I don't feel there's anything wrong with that. However, for most of my career, when people have gone off to select a dog, the same thing you do. What do you want the dog for? What is the end goal with this dog? Like think about this for 12 to 15 years because that's possibly the length of life that you're going to have with this dog. What do you want with this dog? Is it going to be a pet? Is it going to be something that you want low key with, low energy? Service dog. Yeah, I say in this case it's a service dog. So with Australia, there was so much confusion about what a service slash assistant slash therapy dogs. There was so much. Emotional support. It, it, the list goes on and there was just a fucking minefield around it because not only in Australia but in America as well where people were literally. Worldwide. Exactly. So they turn up with a harness on and a couple of stick-on badges that they had next to the dog's name. And some of it was a complete nata con. It was just, this is my dog, I want to get it into the baseball game or I want to take it into the restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. When there were legitimate and real people that need those dogs, that really need those dogs, that were suffering because of it because then people think, well, this is a fucking scam. Yeah. And then they wanted to kick them out and then there was a lot of legal turmoil over it for many years. But the people who did suffer legitimate mental health issues, physical health issues who need those dogs, they were in turmoil over those situations. So people, again, you know, use the term before I like, which is they punk the system. So they fucked people over who were in a legitimate need for that dog because they felt like I live in Australia, I'm this certain type of person, I'm privileged and I should be allowed to do this with my dog. Well, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do those sort of things with your dog. If you need those sort of things with your dog, go off and get the right sort of certification, which is provided by an approved organisation who will certify you and the dog that you actually need to do so. Don't be a fucking asshole to people who legitimately have health concerns and will get 
nothing but grief and turmoil over your poor decisions and your privilege. I really hate that. I don't, I just don't subscribe to that in any way, shape or form. I used to be silent about it, not say much to it, but I actually know people who have suffered because of it. Like, Mm. you know, they've been kicked out of shopping centers or restaurants or something like that because they thought they were being conned and it was a fake because they've been punked. Thank God, thank God the law changed. Thank God the law has basically said if a person comes in and they've got certification, you can't deny them entry. Going back to the actual (laughs) dog. She picked me. She picked me. So I knew she would be a successful service dog. So what qualifications does that person have to know that that's going to be an approved or an appropriate service dog? First and foremost, how does that person know what a service dog's requirements are? Well, how do you know the dog picked you? Let's go all the way back. <laughs> We're really going to unpack this right at the origins, aren't we? When people say to you, the dog picked me. Yeah. Have you ever said that about a dog? Yes. Before I knew better. Okay. Yeah. But so what did that look like when you said it? What it looked like was the other puppies were content doing their own thing. They were playing. They were enjoying each other's company or they were wandering off showing boldness and bravado in other environments where the little sissy came and wanted to sit in my lap and hide away from everything else that was going on and didn't really like too much stress and turmoil going on in the real world. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's usually the sort of indicator. That's the indicator. That's why this is one of the worst things to hear is because the little puppy that wants to hide under your feet and be away from everybody and everything else is not likely to be a very good service dog. But see, it's a paternal or maternal characteristic of a human being to desire that, to want to shelter and protect the one with the creaky wheel. You know, Mm. it's like the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And in that case, these puppies, some of these defunct little puppies that don't have the same characteristics, it doesn't mean they don't make a good pet. It doesn't mean that they won't sit beautifully in your house and be a nice pet slash companion dog. Fine, no problem. But if you're expecting this dog to be bold and confident, well, you've got another thing coming. Those little dogs generally, they skitter away at the first sight of some form of arousal where other dogs would be bold and adventurous and go, oh, what's that? And they want to go and explore it. That's what I look for these days and that's what I encourage people to look for themselves. You do the same. Look for a puppy who's bold. Look for a puppy that if somebody pushes a ladder over and it goes clank, the puppy will turn around and look at it and go, oh, yeah, big deal. So Mm -hmm. what? Who cares about that? The puppy that picked you is probably one that will bury itself so hard up your ass to try and get away from that noise. You'll be thinking, oh, it needs my protection. It needs my love. Yeah. I've mixed feelings. So I don't work in the service dog space. I've trained a few. I don't like to do it. I think that the main reason I don't like to do it is because it, it carries with it a level of commitment to the person, the dog, and the sessions that I'm unable to provide with my current schedule. That's yep. the main reason. Right? But you're looking for a neutral dog when you're doing those sort of things. Like well, if you're doing seeing eye dogs and Assistance Dogs Australia, or, you yeah. know, like those sort of organizations, they really want a dog that has good companion skills but neutralized at the same time. My experience and you know, observation is that a service dog of any kind that has to actually provide a physical assistance to someone. So diabetic alert dog, seeing eye dog, a mobility support dog, those sorts of things. Yeah. I think that it's super necessary that the end user of that dog is not involved in the selection or training of that dog. 100%. They, somebody else selects it, somebody else trains it, and then they do a detailed handover and they make the dog that yep, person. I totally agree. And it seems very easy to pick that template up and apply that to all levels of service dogs. Yep. But it's been my observation, and certainly I'm no expert in this, so you know I'm kind of talking out my ass, but certainly the things that I have seen 
is that when people need an emotional support type dog, maybe they have PTSD, you know, like there could be many and various reasons, right? Is that them doing that with their own dog usually is pretty good because the process of training the dog is the help, mm. not having the trained dog. And and I've observed that whereby people who, you know, their dog would absolutely not be your eyes first pick to be a dog to train to do the task that they ultimately want the dog to do. But the process of training the dog to become able to just pass the public access is therapeutic is what helps the person. Yep. And so there's kind of I have mixed feelings about the therapy slash service slash you know all of those type of dogs is I think that a really nuanced approach is is necessary for that. And so certainly there's organisations here in Australia that say like with PTSD type dogs, they source the dog, they train the dog, they provide it to you. And the dog does a very good job of interrupting self-harm behaviors and stuff like that. So the dog is fantastic at its job, but its job is very definable, right? Like it's very clear. I can write on a piece of paper what this dog's skills are and when and how it will do it. Whereas I think that some other people who have social awkwardness for various reasons, not just awkwardness, but like anxieties and Mm. whatever, are helped tremendously by their nervous wreck, terrible dog that chose them yep. <laughs> because of the amount of fucking work it's going to go. And first thing they got to do is confront, like, I've got to have a trainer come into my house and that's going to be, that's going to be a scary thing. And I've got to build up to being able to do that. A stranger is coming into my house to assist me with this dog. And then I've got to do some research. I've got to, I've got to feed this fucking dog. That's a reason for me to get out of bed every day. That's a reason to be alive. Mm. You know, for many people, that's the reason they don't top themselves is because no one's going to feed their fucking dog. And so that it can just be enough to help us on. And so at the end of the day, even if that dog is a disaster, I've discussed this with people where I've said, Hey, this dog is never going to pass a public access test. Like you're fucking dreaming. This is never going to happen, but we don't stop trying because the act of trying is what's helping you along the way. You're yep. out of the house. Yep. You're fucking in a cafe. You have to meet me here every Wednesday, 11 o'clock, and we're fucking doing this, and I'm going to hold you accountable to this. And that's actually what that person needs, yep. not a dog that helps them. They need rigidity and structure. And when you manage to explain to them this structure is what your dog needs, a lot of people will help their dog but not themselves. And in doing helping their dog, they will help themselves. So that's why I stay out of that space. Mm. And there's probably people who are experts in the service dog community who are kicking their dashboard right now (laughs) saying, fuck you, Pat. But that's been my observation. And certainly that's why I think it's it's murky waters in that area of our industry. I was watching this article where this doctor was talking about they do a a consultation with a lot of people who are suffering mental illness and it is a lot of chanting and a lot of positive affirmations. He said, you know, like I'm a medical doctor, he goes, I'm I'm not into the woo. And he said, but what I have found since I've been working in this field with psychologists and people who have been involved in spiritual healing and so forth is that people who have felt desperately sick and unwell for most of their life are suddenly feeling good. But he said, we're copying a lot of flack from people saying that we're quacks and that we're unqualified and this is bullshit. And he said, but how do you explain like the hundreds of people who actually tell us they're feeling much better and for the first time in their life, like they feel like the problems that were ignored and the things that were going wrong in their life have finally come good. Like who are you to say Mm. don't do that when somebody is reporting and coming back saying 
I feel better than I have ever felt before or the ailments that I've suffered for most of my life, which nobody took me seriously, nobody listened to me, nobody cared about me, suddenly they're gone, like they disappeared from my life. And I feel the same thing about certain types of dogs, you know, like some of these dogs that people use for PTSD. They just having a dog there that they can touch and cuddle and and spend time with them and they feel completely different about that and it gives them their life back. The fact that they can actually travel outside their home, they can, you know, their agoraphobia goes away, anything like that. I would not stand in that person's way and I wouldn't say it's bullshit or it's not true or to be honest, I wouldn't have an opinion about it. If you came to me, Pat Stewart, and said, my dog makes me feel incredible every day, it's changed my landscape, I'm free, I feel liberated, I feel happy, I feel healthy, I wouldn't turn in your way and say, well, who trained your dog? They're a fucking idiot. Yeah. I would say to you, mate, that is amazing. I'm really happy for you. That's the best thing I've heard. Mate, real world example, it's no secret. She's talked about it on the podcast. This is how I met Jazz. Yeah, Jazz exactly eight right. years ago came to me. I'd never met her. We knew a common person. Uh, who put us in touch and that she had her assistance dog was, <laughs> it was not her assistance dog. It was a dog she was training as one. It was one that she got herself. Yep. Genta, dog was a fucking disaster. And as I said to her the first day I met her, I said, this is so unlikely to work out. In order to get this dog certified as an assistance dog, you're going to have to become an incredible dog trainer. And she was like, well, I ain't got anything else going on. So, <laughs> so let's do that. And here mm. we are eight years later. Because of that, she is one of the most important people in my life. She's changed and, her complete yeah, landscape. And, but like, I am benefited from it. So that's what, mm. like, the effects to her are obvious. She became an incredible dog trainer. She certified the dog, all of the things. But that then works as a network out. Absolutely. And as I say, mate, I want to sing her praises. She pulled me up the other day. We were training. And because I've said, you know, like, I'm not going to p- compete in anything with Remy ever again. Like, he's too fragile. I'm just going to enjoy him and whatever. But I still train with him because he enjoys it and I enjoy it. We're doing something at training and I got kind of lazy and Jazz fucking pulled me up twice in the one session and was like, hey, you, this is not how you train, right? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not. And it's like the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Train your dog with the accuracy and precision with mm. which you will train another dog or else this will spiral out of control. Yep. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> thank you so much, right? But so – and all that is from – not that the dog chose her, but that she had an unlikely to pass assistance dog and it put in the work and it, it changed her life and mine and many, many others. Mate, the, some of the things that I've poked fun at other people about, you know, like the urban myths and so forth is I've subscribed to them in the past because I didn't know better at the time. Mm. But as my favourite quote says, do the best until you know better. And I didn't know better and some of these people don't know better. So hopefully this is a portal of education for some people if it's their beginning journey that some people say, hey, listen to this before you go off and make these outrageous claims and you make these suggestions based on no industry experience whatsoever. Have a listen to this or at least read this forum where people have gone into great depth in forums. I've seen some really terrific and intellectual and very, very cerebral posts that people have put together. And I thought I wouldn't dare say another word on top of that Mm. because all I'll do is just litter it with nonsense. All I wanted to say was well done. I think Mm. this is incredible. Thank you for educating me. And I have done in the past where I've just said this is outstanding. Thank you to the team of people who put the time together to research this and put this material together because that's made me smarter coming in here and reading it. Where usually when I go into forums, I feel like a hell of a lot dumber after I've left it. So those sort of things, anytime people do that and anytime I've congratulated you, I'm telling you it's from the heart Mm -hmm. because it's been an incredible benefit and to the people. And they're the sort of things that I like to direct people's attention to saying, I don't know, but 
these group of people or this particular person has written this amazing article slash podcast slash course, go and do it, go and read it, go and invest your time in it because it is absolutely incredible and not doing it would be a disservice to your ongoing knowledge and skills. Boom. Boom. All right, we got time for one more. One more, one more. Um, This one I like. We've had him two weeks and he just doesn't listen. He's eight weeks old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, those sort of things are amazing that people are so hell-bent on trying to do skills development with babies. As dog trainers, it's not even people who are doing skills development. Like they just, there's this assumption that the dog, We'll do what it's told and we'll listen. And and also he's eight weeks old that, and we've had him two weeks. That's one of the things as a trainer, the topic is things dog trainers hate to hear. And when someone says to you, I've had him two weeks, he just doesn't listen. That tells us, okay, you're not actually training because two weeks is not long enough to get a dog mm. fitting in real life. And then when they drop his eight weeks old, then the layers of difficulty in being able to help that person have just gotten so much deeper in that we then go, okay, first of all, we're going to have to narrow your expectations as to what actually is capable of a dog, right? Like being able to listen and follow, do everything, fit into your lifestyle perfectly at eight weeks old and how unrealistic that is. And achieving anything within two weeks of significant value with a dog is another thing we're going to have to attack. Mm. But then I think one of the worst to sort of, you know, really get deep on this is that this, he's eight weeks old. And I've had him two weeks. I think one of the worst things we do as dog trainers or like the worst feelings that you get is when you know, okay, I have to explain to this person that you have taken on a lifelong problem. Mm. You know, when you sort of have to say, I'm sure you've had a million of those conversations absolutely, where someone just drops a fact to you that is just whimsical, like of, of no concern to them. Mm-hmm. And then you then have to go, you got this dog at six weeks old. Like that is early litter removal. You get a Malinois six week old, no problem. In fact, sometimes I prefer to get them that, you know, that old because they, they might have issues in the litter. No big deal. Remember that Scott and Fuller talked about the critical period being different for different breeds of dogs. Yeah. They did say that there were variables within that. Of course. And that's something that I, I went back to recheck on because I thought, I do recall reading that. I just want to make sure that that is actually what I said. Mm-hmm. So I read the passage where it said it. I've pulled up statements where it's actually suggested that that's what came back from their study, that it's 6 to 16 weeks. It was an average, a means average that was said, this is the means average of most dogs, yeah. but the variability in different breeds, there is waverance of weak here, weak there. And beyond the breed, the outcome of the dog, if I've got a dog that's going to be a, a remitter raised to be a police dog, what it's going to learn in that seventh and eighth weeks with its litter mates, I don't need it to know. Mm. I don't need it to have social skills with other dogs. Once it's in my hands, you know, and especially once the police, it's likely never to interact with another dog ever again. That's right. right. And so I don't need those social skills that it's going to learn, uh, you know, those dominance hierarchy type things that the litter is going to start establishing at between six and eight weeks. But for people that are going down to dog parks. Fucking oath, they need that. They need it. Yeah. And yeah. so that's one of the things when someone says, I've had him two weeks and he's eight weeks old. That for me, you know, then you're like, okay, fuck, I have to try and explain to you, you have an early litter removal dog and there's problems of that. And then usually I got him at six weeks, well, because my brother-in-law bred him. Mm. And so now I have to explain the brother-in-law is a piece of shit for breeding backyard dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, that conversation is never as simple as like, oh, okay, well, let's carry on with the training. It's like, okay, we have to realign your expectations of what a dog is capable of. But now I have to explain to you that you've negatively impacted this dog by having it at this time. And so what your dog's capable of is even less than others potentially. That's not to say that 
having a dog at six weeks is the end of the world, but it's, it's going to have an impact on that dog for the rest of its life. Yep. For sure. It's similar to what we were discussing in the last episode about he's protecting me is where you now go, okay, it's not good enough for me as a trainer just to say, no, he's not protecting you. We're about to spend the next 20 minutes sort of unpacking what's really going on here. Your little dog, your little eight-week-old dog isn't not listening to you. It's a fucking baby and you've stunted its development. How many people do you think really take that on board? Of the percentage of people that you've seen, like how many of them sit down and and really take it on board and say, oh, wow, we've got some you know, uh, layering? I'd say, well, for me, I'd say 100% because – and make sure that I, they understand that. Mm. Because I think without understanding that, you can't make progress. I think a lot of people listen, but the fact that I don't see them following through with the work, that's where I know that they're not really taking it on board mm. or not treating it with the seriousness that it needs to be treated with. Sure, sure. Because when they will come back the following week, it's evident that the homework hasn't been done even though myself or colleagues have expressly told them same sort of thing. Like you haven't started at zero, you've started at negative five. That's the problem that you have. That's the analogy that I use with people. I said most people when they come to me, they're starting zero or they're starting at three, four or five, depending on some of the work they've done. You're starting at negative five. The problem that you have is you're well behind the starting peg that most people would start at. Mm. So I said consider it was like a a 100-meter dash and you've got a, a disadvantage of a ball and chain around your ankle or that you've had to start 50 metres behind everybody else. Mm. Unless you're an exceptional runner, there's no chance you're going to win that race. It's already created a problem for you. When I use those extreme examples, people sit up and take notice. They go, fuck, you know, is that really what's going to happen? Yes, unfortunately it is because, as you said, early litter removal, people have taken the dog out. The chances of the dog being aggressive is considerably higher because of that early litter removal because it hasn't had the stimulation, it hasn't had the ability to be able to bite and play and function with other dogs. Usually if that's the case and the puppy is young enough, what I do say to them is if it's at all possible, you need to get this puppy in with other puppies Mm. now. Like it needs to happen now. You need to get back in with even kill to puppies, not other puppies are going to get bashed by your dog or vice yeah. versa, but where there is fun and wrestle and levels of arousal can only be met with a litter playing with each other. You need to do that now. Yeah. Or so, an adult dog that can yeah, fulfill that. Yeah. Correct. And that's what I used to say is don't worry about doing lessons now. What you really need to work on is your socialization and habituation. That's what is most important before you come back. Don't worry about puppy classes. Just do that because this is what needs to be done. I do see people that come around to that. And they do subscribe to that. Even if people don't have the means to do it, they've said to me before, could you try and help me find somebody to do that? Because I wouldn't have the, the mm. faintest idea. That I love. I don't have a problem with that. doesn't mean they're lazy. It just means that they're not connected to the network that we are connected to. So we shouldn't scorn them for saying that. I mean, I've had people that have paid me for it before. Like I've said, I know this is going to take you time to do. I'm happy to pay you for the time to do it. There's times where I've done it gratis and there's other times where I've accepted payment for it because it has taken a shitload of work to try and rustle up a social play activity and so forth. Or I've even instigated it with people before, not instigated, what would I say, facilitated it where I've taken them around, I've met the person who's agreed to do it with their litter of dogs, the person's brought their puppy around, it's been fine, it's been good. We've Mm. shown them how to interact, they're very, very involved in it. Where there's other people that a week's gone by, two weeks gone by, three weeks gone by, nothing. And I'll say to them, like a, a good coach should, if you go to a coach to put on muscle and lose weight, you want that person dogging you in a kind and supportive yeah. way. 
saying, okay, well, what are you eating this week? What does it look like? Show me a diet plan. Show me, have you written anything down? What are the calories behind what you're doing? How much walking are you doing? How much water are you consuming? How much less sugar have you consumed during the week? You want that support. You want that doggedness from that person. And that's the sort of thing that I've provided for people before. I said, well, show me what you're doing. Like, yeah. you know, like I need to see your calendar. I need to see the schedules. I need to see what you're actually doing. I need to see the activity that you've done. What does your day look like? What does your working day look like? What does your working week look like? What does your activity with your children look like? How much time is really left between you and the dog to be able to provide this service to the dog? Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt, I have been guilty in the past of making assumptions as to how much people understand of what you're saying. Yeah. And I've constantly, I just had this conversation with someone just the other day. Like I constantly find myself reminding myself of like my own, say like health and fitness journey. I've been in a physical role my whole life. I've never not had a job that required me to be physically fit. And I have been weapon fit and I've been sloppy and fat. <laughs> I've, I've been everything in between, right? Yeah. Uh, uh. And so I've trained most of my adult life. But if I walk into a big box gym without a program, I haven't got a fucking clue what to do because yep. I don't care. Like it's not something I'm into. For me, it's a necessary evil. I have to train because I need to be strong in the life that I want to live. It's just part of who I am. But the process of doing it does not excite me even in the slightest. Mm. I don't enjoy it. It's not something that I like look forward to going to the gym. That's the issue. It's a necessary evil. That's the issue. Every time that I've ever been proper fit, it's when I have a super rigid program written by somebody else to do. But when I don't have that kind of program and I walk into a gym, I'm like, I guess I'll do some bicep curls. I guess I'll do some squats and fuck knows what else, right? And so that's the same with so many of our clients when we go like, hey, you need to be training this. Then they go down the park and they throw the ball and they ask the dog to sit a couple of times and they throw the ball a couple more times and then that's training. For us, we look at that and go, that's some bullshit. Like, yeah, technically you leverage the dog a couple of times, you use some positive reinforcement, you established a tiny bit of structure in the same way I pick up the bicep, I'd pick up the dumbbells and do a bunch of different bicep curls. Like, yes, I technically worked out. It's better than nothing, but it's not going to fix the fucking issue. Mm. And that's what we do as trainers, or I have been guilty of many times in the past, is just assuming that people know. And the avatar of that is so many people who are into dogs but are not dog trainers. In the same way, I'm into health and fitness, but I'm not a professional in this. This is not something that I should pass on information to anybody about, and it's not something that I can see step two after step one. I don't know those steps because I don't give a fuck. I'm going to take them. Yep. Somebody has to hold my hand as I do it because I don't get it. That's the point is that if you do care about this and you are invested in it as the professional, then you have to be a little bit dogged about it with your client. Yeah. Because I've said to people before, actually, there's a really good quote. Let me pull it up. Somebody put it online and I thought that is exceptionally good and everybody needs to know this. Here it is. Before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that make him sick. Mm. And it's by Hippocrates. Mm -hmm. That is the same thing and it's the same question that I ask people There was a dog that I trained the other day that came to me, problem dog, with the client. And the first thing I did, even before seeing that quote, as I sat him down in the chair and I said, do you want to keep this dog or is this permission to get rid of the dog? And they said, no, no, I want to keep the dog, anything it takes. I said, great, let's go from there. Now here comes the hard part. You have to do what I'm going to tell you to do within reason and it can modify as much as we need to. It doesn't mean that my word is gospel. We can modify that and even if somebody suggests something to you, I'm happy to take it on board and happy to do whatever we need to do. But the hard work really starts now and it is going to be hard and it's going to be unbearable. 
for the first couple of weeks because it's going to change a lot of routine. It's going to challenge the narrative that you're used to right now. And I said, are you in it with me? And they said, yes. And I said, good, let's proceed. Mm. The great thing is, is they're already on my back now about making sure the next lesson is booked because I said, I am going away for a week. I'm going away doing a motorcycling thing. I will be back. And as soon as I'm back, you and I can continue. But for that week, I will be away. But if something's urgent, if something's happened, you can call out to me, you can message me and I'm happy to go from there. Fantastic. Sent me a message while I was away. Are we certainly on, definitely on during that week? I said, definitely 100%. You're booked in. I will be there. You need to be there. Let's go. Great. I've got a client who's really willing to put in the hard work, who knows that it's a pain in the ass, who knows that the next couple of weeks slash month is going to be unbearable. And it is. It's fucking unbearable. Changing routine for a lot of people is fucking unbearable. It's Mm. uncomfortable. But Jordan Peterson talks so well about it. He says these are the things that we have to grab the bull by both horns and really grasp this understanding that things are going to get shitty for a while before they get better because they always and usually do, I shouldn't say always, but they usually do cycle down before they cycle up. Mm. And I found the same thing for myself. Every time I've changed something, every time I've wanted to do something, every time I've had to weight loss or anything like that because I get comfortable or if I get stressed, that's my go-to, you know, Mm. like comfort is in food. Whereas when I know that I need to eat better because Narelle's saying, look, you're over 50 now, it only gets downhill from here, you have to do this, have to do that. She's 100% right. You know, my mate Scott just lost who I rode bikes with. He's lost an incredible amount of weight. Like he lost something like, you know, 15 kilos because he got diabetes type 2. He's reversed it now. He's really eating clean. He's off sugars. He's he's fasting. So he's doing the, you know, he doesn't eat breakfast. He fasts till 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Then when he's eating again, he's eating clean. He's drinking clean water and so forth like that. All the things that I should be doing. But I realize that I've got to get it in my head now. And it's kind of inspired me that I, I thought, yeah, I do need to do this. I am putting too much weight on. I I use COVID as an excuse and as the cover for my laziness <laughs> and my... This COVID fat. It's, it, it's it, like a COVID puppy. It is, but the fact is is that before COVID, I was 95 kilos. I was rolling. I was doing jujitsu three nights a week. You know, like I was really doing well and I felt fit and I felt great and I was listening to Narelle's advice. I was taking the supplements that she told me to take. I was eating the foods that she suggested I should eat. She still is dogged on me, but the problem is is that I can be anti that sometimes and I can get it in my head that I don't need to do that because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, but it fucking does matter. Mm. It does matter if you want that radical change, if you want the change for the better. That's what I'm trying to say. You can go on your comfort lifestyle. You can put your bullshit excuses. You can cloud your judgment on all those sort of things, but unless you really want to embrace – and you're the one – you know this, man. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the people out there, but – Unless you really want it to change, it won't change. Mm. But once you decide that you really do want to change, heaven and hell need to get out of your way because, like, you become really empowered to make that want to happen. And that's the wondrous thing that I've seen with people with dogs is when they really understand things do need to change here, this puppy deserves a better lifestyle than the the current trajectory that it's on. Fuck, man, I admire those people so much because I can see – It's not so much about the money. The money isn't the thing, but they understand that the short-term misery and discomfort that they have to go through 
is going to pay dividends for what's going to happen next in the lifestyle of that dog. And who knows what happens then? Who knows if they decide, hey, this dog's got potential, let's go into sports. This dog's got potential, let's go into noseworks. This dog's got potential to be an amazing pet, Mm. a better than that shitty dog that goes down the park and wants to tail up another dog down there or a dog that fucking hides under a cafe chair and then smashes the waiter as it goes past. And that's another headline that we hear about a dog that comes flying out and bites some random kid, random adult, random dog on the street, all because that person just didn't put in that groundwork to start with. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's my rant. That's no, a good one. I was thinking during it, the thing is with change, change follows chaos. So chaos births change. And yeah, so absolutely. Sometimes people have to already be in chaos in order to be willing to change or sometimes, you know, in order, if they want change, you have to create the chaos for them in order for the change to be able to happen. And it's tricky. I think for us, many times that you and I have shared conversations off air and we've shared conversations on air, but mainly off air, we've talked about how incredibly bad comfort is for people Mm. and how it creates a level of apathy. Mm. The best change that I've seen in people before, the the most remarkable, it's like Scott, it took him to get diabetes before he decided that he wanted to change. Hope I'm not blowing the whistle on him about, <laughs> about his health thing, but it's not that he's not telling people, but it took something like that for him to say something needs to radically change. And he looks great. Like he looks amazing. He's a 15 kilo lighter person. He's sleeping better. He's happier. He's healthier. We all know the, yeah, yeah. the ramifications of what happens when you change and do things well. But when we do get comfortable and when we settle on things sometimes, it can be some of the most fucked up time in your life because you just think to yourself, you know, there is no need for me to be creative or inspired or anything like that because I can sit comfortably in my little puddle of apathy and just let things just roll on by. And then before you know it, years, decades, a lifetime passes by and then you realise You know, I think you and I were talking about something the other day where people have let life just roll on by Mm. and then they're bitter and twisted and they hate other people because they're successful and things have happened in their life and they think, well, fuck you, but they could have had it. Mm. They could have had it. They just had to fight a little harder than the person that was hungrier and wanted to climb that hill rather than the person just thought, fuck it, I'm, I'm just happy scrounging around at the bottom of the hill hoping that scraps will roll down to me. Heavy. Heavy. All, all <laughs> from a fun topic we've made all this heaviness. This was a heavy episode. Alexandria is going to be sitting there going, this is not what I intended. Yeah. It's supposed to be fun. There's still plenty of things here. This is There's so I many know, episodes but, of this. <laughs> but we got to go. It's time to go train some dogs in real life. Yes. A bit of IRL training. IRL. That's it mm. for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. Yes. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, do all that through whichever subscription service you download us from and then go do it to another one. Best way to support the show, if you really want to do that, is Patreon. That's yep. Daddy needs those VR goggles. Oh, so. Audible. We are on Audible, so you can leave a – if you listen to Audible, if you listen to the podcast. We're on Audible. Yeah. I didn't know they had podcasts on Audible. They do have podcasts on Audible. Oh. So you can also leave – if you're listening to us through Audible, you can leave a review on Audible. Even if you're not listening to us through Audible. Just go and leave a review. review. They yeah. don't check. No they one don't checks. Check. No one checks. You can leave reviews on anything you want. You can. <laughs> People do it all the time. Mm. But best way to put the show, Patreon. Get into there. A few bucks a month. Yep. It really helps us, supports the show. And we want those Apple Vision goggles when they come out. We're going to do a podcast with it. We're going to do every podcast with them on. It'll be amazing. I can't wait. Just looking at you, I can change my eyes. 
I can I can have female <laughs> eyes. I could do whatever I want to. You could do anything. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Buy a t-shirt. Get in the spring. Yeah. Buy a shirt. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Do it. Even if you felt like, oh, I don't really want to do it, just do it. Yeah, just do you, it. Anyway. You'll feel great. Like as soon as that lin gets on your skin, yeah, and, and you're walking down the street and somebody online, oh, and as soon as somebody sees those really quirky, it arriving at your house, salty will be a- dog statements on the back, they're going to say, "Who is that person?" No, like- it arriving at your house will be a total letdown. But what'll be amazing <laughs> is when you get on your computer and you're like, "Fucking, oh, the dopamine surge!" Oh yeah, you're- yeah. Doing it. I'd get that too. While you're actually like, oh, I'm adding it to my cart. And then they're like, do you want this as well? And you go, fucking oath, I want Yeah, I that. need a mug. Yeah, and then you go, oh, shit, that's too much. And you take a couple of things out of your cart and then you're like, go back. <laughs> oh, no, I can get a couple of things. Yeah. That, that's what you love. When it oh, turns yeah, up, yeah, you're yeah. like, no, yeah, yeah. I want this fucking T-shirt. I, I have that happen to me where I buy stuff and then it arrives. like, oh, what the fuck did I buy that for? Yeah. I don't even and want this. And then goes, where are you going to put that? That's another conversation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do that. Yeah, do it. Do it. Or if you want to get in touch with us, just jump in the Facebook discussion. Hey, group. don't forget tapestries. You know I'm big on tapestries. Yeah, you are. And yeah. you're going to feel great ordering your tapestry. Yeah. Actually, I, I need a tapestry. I don't have one. You do need a tapestry. Now, yeah. Okay, we need to order we your need tapestry. To order a tapestry. Yeah. All right. All right. If you want to get in contact with us, jump in the Facebook discussion group. We did that, Patreon, didn't we? Yeah, we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Check. We did Spring. Check. Yeah. That's what, it. We're on to. Oh, what about? Did we do the mailing list? No, get on the mailing list. Yeah. Get on it. We've Mate. never sent anyone an email yet. <laughs> we pay, what do we pay? How 80 many bucks people a month got on or the something? Mailing list? I don't know. I haven't checked. But all I know is that social media is changing and you've got to have a mailing list. Yep. That's all I know. Hey, if you want to go to Daddy Elon and ask him if he'll just throw a lazy mill at us, we'd happily accept that. I mean, mm. we could do some. Imagine having enough money that we could buy our own dog kennel or something like well, that. Well, so something. here's the thing I've thought about getting in touch with Daddy Elon because. Uh, there's a problem coming in working dogs mm. and, and uh, especially in Australia that is easy to fix, but it's very expensive. Yes. And I, I, I've heard your plan on this. Before. Yeah. I've got mm. a whole plan. Like uh, in 10 years with $35 million and 10 years, I could turn Australia into the hub of working dogs. Yep. And I know th- when I say $35 million in 10 years, that sounds like a lot, but that is nothing in government terms. And Daddy Elon terms, that's not a drop in the ocean. Well, government get fucking done for their corrupt dealing when they're just throwing their mates yeah. a lazy but like, 20, 30, 50 mil here and there. But this is one of the things that, you know, there's huge issues of availability of working dogs, Australia-wide, and but worldwide as well. But certainly in Australia, we face unique challenges because of the nature of the quarantine and whatever. Yeah. With $35 million and 10 years, I can fix that problem. And I know that's a huge amount of money. $35 million is a ridiculously big amount of money. But it's not, especially in the government, when they just make more ones and zeros. It's yeah. not real money They don't money even look anyway. after their own departments properly. In no, exactly. Field. But this is the thing. like They could start. Yeah. Yes. And I've thought about contacting Daddy Elon and just saying, hey, I have no of a problem. This is And this is not with me taking a salary. Like I don't even necessarily have to be the person involved in this. Why but, wouldn't you take a salary? Well, of course, if I were to do it. But I, I don't necessarily want to be the person that does it. Mm. But there's a, it's an easy thing to fix. Yep. But it requires money and infrastructure that we don't have in place. I would just love to go to a, like a trillionaire and say, hey, you're like a trillionaire or a billionaire. Mm. Okay. You could make me a millionaire just like that. 
Yeah, you but snap mate, your fingers. they don't do that. that. That's not in their interest. I know, but it's in mine. Did you see Oprah? <laughs> Oprah trying to convince people to donate to Maui thing. And they gave nothing. Like, Did you see that? To her and The Rock have started the People's Fund. There's $20,000 in there because the people are really yeah, disenfranchised well, them. by them. Fuck them. Yeah, not well, people of Maui. Fuck Oprah. Yeah, because like, she she could change their lives immediately. Yeah. like do you know how I appreciate in that space? Oh, come on, we got we got to train dogs. But I will say this is Johnny Depp. Did you see in the case of... His court case thing where they were probing about how much money he'd given to charities and mm. he's like it's none of your business like it's a lot but i have a person that's in charge of that and they're like well there's no record of you having given to charities because i don't give him my name i don't need i love a, that yeah he's i like, love benevolent i love anonymous benevolence yeah. he said it's but important. he said i have an amount of money that's allocated to that and yeah. i have a person that does that like i'm so committed to it the reason you can't find that i do that is because i don't want you yeah. to be able to find that i do that good on you johnny depp yeah. Assuming that that's true. All right, we've got to wrap it up. I've got to go train dogs. Okay. 10 minutes late. Get uh, in the Facebook group. That. Shoot yes. us an email. We're info at the canine paradigm.com. I love you. Goodbye. <laughs>